Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and today we're speaking with Kelly Schmoody. Kelly is a wonderful designer uh, at the Stanford D School and has done a whole range of different work. Um, but in particular, she, alongside her co-author, Andrea Small, have just released a book called Navigating Ambiguity. And so we're going to explore some of these ideas today. I mean, it's something we've all been doing over the last two years is navigating extreme ambiguity. So what a, a perfect theme for us to kind of dive into. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Luca. It's a delight to be on your show. Oh, look, I'm, I'm excited for the chat, to be honest, um, <laughs> as you know I am. So t- let's, take us, let's just get straight in. Tell us what's something that you've been learning recently. Yeah, I love that you start with this question. Um, just sets the tone of curiosity and learning. And um, I was going to respond something I learned. Maybe it's not an act of learning, but uh, learned recently, more of a fact. But I think it speaks to kind of a greater, um, a greater need around uh, education, design education. But um, yeah. I recently got to travel to Mexico City. Um, had never been there before. Cool. Um, and I like to try and, you know, read up on the history of a place before, before traveling there. And um, I learned that um, many centuries ago, it used to be an island uh, in the middle of a lake. Um, you're nodding your head. Maybe, maybe you knew this already if you've, um, if you've been there, but um, this is uh, news to me. I mean, it's, it's already at such high elevation. It's mm. kind of, you know, in this, in this valley and used to be part of a, part of a lake um, and the, you know, uh, indigenous people that, that were living there had created this amazing city and causeways um, out, to, out to the shores and um, just really, really cool to, to see visualizations of it and, you know, learn about how through then after the Spanish inv- invasion, um, they wrestled with, with water and rebuilding the city. And um, you now, you know, you fly in, it's just urbanization for miles and miles. It's so densely packed and of course no water to be seen. So mm. they've drained a lot of the original lake. Um, but uh, you know, still water management is, is a problem because it is kind of in this uh, basin surrounded by mountains. But um, you know, I think uh, we as Americans, I can't, I can't speak for you as Aussies, but um, you know, I think we, we're not always great about knowing history or prioritizing knowing mm-hmm. history. And I think particularly in design, like we're always so excited about what's the new thing, what's the next uh, thing, yeah, what's the totally. like fresh thing we're creating now. Um, and it can sometimes feel less exciting to think about well, where have we been, you know, <laughs> and what have we learned from where we've been and starting there and really immersing in the context. Um, you know, we, as in design work, often start with empathizing with other people and looking outside ourselves for inspiration. And, you know, that really needs to extend that, that phase of learning and inspiration to really understanding the context and the culture that, that you're working in, you know, looking, mm. looking back in time. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's enough or more than enough to improve on, on what's been created already, rather than thinking like we need to come in and make the new thing, build, build the new thing. So yeah. I think it ties into a posture of humility um, that we, that we should have as designers. I love, I love that Kelly. And I, it, it's so true. How, how on earth can we know where we might be going unless we've known where mm. we've come from? And, and right. I think, right. you know, to even bring up the example you've used, you know, indigenous peoples around the world are so good 
at understanding connections oh, yes. to country and to history. Oh, and yes. we, we kind of get a bit distracted by, oh, cool, here's the next release of mm. product mm. X, you know. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, totally. that's and the yeah. humility that kind of knowing mm-hmm. that we are at a point in time, you know, it's, it's, the fabric of time continues. I think it's such a wonderful way to, to really Absolutely. think about design. Yeah, how do we honour yeah, honor what's come before and then, mm-hmm. like, you know, help shape what comes next, um, which, is, which is, I think, beautiful into this piece around ambiguity because, as, as you write in Navigating Ambiguity, you know, this, this idea that we, it has to be navigated, right? We can't, <laughs> we can't, um, can't conquer it in any particular way. It's very much this wayfaring, yeah. yeah, this, mm. like, it's a navigation, like, and we, have, we need a compass, we need you know, map myself by the stars, you know, what's our guiding principles that help us to move us towards this world. So, so take us into this, this world of unknowns and how we truly create opportunity within it. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, building on what we were just talking about with, uh, you know, inspiration from indigenous practices and people, I mean, Couple of years ago, I was working on a project um, called Project Wayfinder around yes. um, how do we build kind of more purpose-based uh, tools into education for high schoolers. How do we, at a much earlier age, equip them to start thinking about why am I here and what do I want to do in the world and kind of beyond the classroom, what are what are things that I care about and how do I really think about you know approaching this sometimes scary unknown future with a mm. sense of curiosity right and um you know and, and and not fear and um we learned a ton um from uh building a relationship with the polynesian voyaging society um based in hawaii and um just phenomenal phenomenal people and um i think learned so much about um, kind of the spirit of wayfinding of what it means to have a vision and how to be purposeful uh, and flexible in how you get somewhere. Mm. So that kind of combination of like intention and skill as well as adaptability and openness is just being like this beautiful embodiment of what wayfinding looks like, you know, in, in an applied way. And, you know, wayfinding in many ways is navigating ambiguity, navigating the unknown. Mm. Um, you know, they've, they've uh, mastered the art of open ocean navigation, traveling thousands and thousands of miles um, across, across the Pacific um, using non-traditional navigation instruments. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that uh, this idea of kind of balancing um, intention um, and vision um, and skill with uh, openness and adaptability um, really is kind of a core um, idea that we, we present in the book. Um, we introduce it with a, a story about um, Polynesian navigators, mm. um, but this balance uh, in the book we articulated is acting and adapting. So of um, taking action, applying those design tools and frameworks that you know, um, all the things like um, you know learning from others, uh, prototyping um, to to understand and evolve. Um, to uh, 
so that category of things in, in the acting with uh, uh, paired with adapting, um, mm. keeping open the set of possibilities. So I think, you know, when, when you say adapting, it, it definitely means like, okay, something, <laughs> some, something happened, your flight got canceled or this new constraint <laughs> got introduced or, or whatnot, you know, something comes up in the moment and you, and you have to actually adapt course. So I think there's that kind of reactive adapting. Yeah. And I think there's an, also an element that, that we're really trying to capture in the book that's around openness. And to me, that that's um, a proactive kind of a, adapting, if you will, which is really about like intentionally holding open a space for multiple possibilities. Um, and that's just something that, you know, is, is, is hard to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I, I, there's a couple of things that really stand, stand yeah. out for me, which it's hard to do for all of us. I mean, one of the questions that we might come to is, you know, we're not, I love this, this idea of this paradox of intention, vision, and skill on the one hand, and then the openness and adaptability on the other, and being able to have those two pieces, like to kind of pick up something and then be able to put it down. And then to pick it back up and put it down consistently, you know, like to attach to it, but then to disattach, you know, from a, a, you know a strategic plan, a set of expectations, the way we thought our lesson was going to go, you know, the holiday that we had booked to go to Hawaii before, you know, some ridiculous pandemic strain kind of struck and destroyed our plans. So I'm, I'm really struck by that. The other thing that I really like is the three E's, and you know, this idea around like what is our our own reflection on our current ability to to navigate ambiguity and the idea of you know in just being able to endure you know engage or to really embrace and i'd love for you to talk a bit about that because that feels to be both like um you know we flow through depending on what else is going on in our life an ability to kind of hold ambiguity at different mm -hmm. levels yeah but i wonder yeah. as well if, if you do think there is this kind of capability under that can be developed over time for us to become more open oh, and sure. more yes so, I'd love you to yes. speak to all that. Yes. Like, take us through that journey. <laughs> okay, so endure, engage, embrace. So, um, yeah, before we even think about like navigation tools and strategies, which was kind of what I was uh, getting to in that um, last bit about balancing, acting, and adapting, I think the first part is really understanding your own kind of internal, personal reaction to ambiguity, right? Like, you're not going to get anywhere on um, building up your kind of tolerance for it, unless you understand where you are and what kind of reactions you have to it based on your experiences. So we did this um, uh, exercise a couple years back at the D school. We always have an orientation at the beginning of the quarter to kind of welcome the students and get them acquainted with um, different things around the space. We take mm. pictures of everyone and put them up on the, put them up on the wall. Um, and so we decided um, as part of that year's photo taking to have everyone craft a metaphor that captured their relationship with ambiguity. And it was in the form of like ambiguity is like blank because blank. So it could be like ambiguity is like trying to drive a race car through a smoky racetrack because you can't see where you're going, but you just mm -hmm. have to press the gas and go. Yeah. Um, or some, you know, something like that. And so they were just totally open and we got amazing responses. We had about 150 D school students that spring. Um, and so we cataloged all of them. And then I started doing um, synthesis of them. I was curious, like, could, could I find patterns amongst the, the student responses? Um, and they kind of shook out into um, these three different categories. Of course, 
think of them more as a continuum, but um, on one end was um, kind of more of this uh, uh, endure attitude where ambiguity is seen as something that, you know, is antagonistic to your objective. You really got to like push through it. It's just about getting through to the other side. So it's kind of a negative thing. So a lot of those metaphors, you know, included being like trapped in a place, um, having limited um, control of your senses or use of your senses was a common thing, like not being able to see, not being able to hear or um, move. Um, So that was one category. Um, the, the second engage was kind of like, let's say a more neutral attitude towards ambiguity. So maybe it'd be something like, um, you know, ambiguity is like jumping off a cliff to go paragliding because it could be amazing or you could crash, you know, something like (laughs) (laughs) it felt where it felt a little bit more like a gamble, you know, like, um, you know, could either go really well or really poorly. Um, and there was just sort of openness but it felt like you know more of an off-road adventure like eh, it might be worth it to go out check this thing out maybe there'll be something cool or maybe a tiger will eat me i don't know mm. um and um so and then the third category and there were, i'd say the fewest of these responses um was around uh uh, we called embracing ambiguity. And I think inherent in these metaphors was an innate understanding and appreciation for the value of ambiguity, seeing it as a place that um, was generative and fruitful and that led to rich ideas and discoveries. Um, I'd say they also didn't necessarily, you know, convey that ambiguity is easy or that mm. it felt comfortable. Yeah. It's <laughs> really yeah. important to say. Like, I think they still conveyed, um, uh, you know, that, that there, there could be danger or discomfort, but there was also kind of the glimmer of a sense of, of promise and what might be gained in staying in this, this place of, of the unknown. Um, so, yeah, I think you asked the question of, um, you know, do, do our attitudes towards ambiguity, do they change over time? I think absolutely yes. I think one, they're context dependent. So, you know, you, you, you might kind of have an overall, you know, uh, kind of comfort or attachment with one of those added, yeah, disposition, but um, I think it's totally context dependent. You know, what you feel like in a certain project at work might be really different than what you feel about like, oh my gosh, what am I doing with my life? What's my next career move or in a relationship mm. or, you know, across the whole swath, like it could really vary depending on context. Um, and yes, I definitely think that, you know, students, um, or all of our abilities to, to navigate ambiguity can change with time. And, you know, we, we didn't co- collect enough of those metaphors over time to, to really do some serious data analysis on it, but um, there was enough just kind of anecdotally to see that, yes, students that had taken uh-huh. two or more d-school classes at that point had gone through some of those cycles had been in that place of discomfort and then come out the other side and seem like, wow, we actually <laughs> got to some really cool, interesting places we wouldn't have otherwise, that those students tended to have more of a like engage or embrace attitude mm. and students who are brand new and um you know are taking a d-school class for the first time that's so interesting um i just feel like i can't remember who he said it this idea that discomfort because you spoke up you spoke about the word of comfort right discomfort is the price of a meaningful life 
Like, I'm not sure whose quote that is. Ooh, and I just need to write that down. But, yeah, I mean, it's so good though. But it's, it's also the discovery yeah. is, is the price of a meaningful project or a meaningful learning experience. I think the same thing will apply um, as, you've, as you've put, because if we're just stepping into the known all the time, it's, it's not really that exciting anymore. Mind you, yeah, mind you, I do feel there's, there's this idea of, you know, how much uncertainty and, and like, can we truly hold as human beings and I, I feel like particularly with the lockdowns on again off again you know with it's that's been really interesting I think for us it's, it's a collective experience yeah um, oh, for sure because I think if people yeah. thought I mean if you ever needed to make a case for navigating ambiguity I think something like what's happened over the last two years two and a half years really has been a pretty good sure sure made right. the case right. for I know. us you know <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, no, I wanted, well, we, yeah hmm. I, I, I wonder about we, this. We certainly didn't know, you know, that a, a pandemic was coming around the corner when we started writing the book. It was in um, 2019, so oh, it was it? pre-COVID. So we, we had no idea that just how how meaningful and how relevant it would be to all of us. But um, yeah, uh, Kelly, it's so it's so good. And this idea of thinking like a designer, is, you know, because this really is one of the, the mm. design capabilities. I think the design mm -hmm. principles that you, you talk about there at the Stanford D School. Um, I'd love for you to try to take us on like a, is, is there a, a case study or a, like a story you want to tell us about how, you know, you're talking about some students, for example, whose, whose ability to navigate ambiguity has increased because they've gone through these, mm -hmm. these experiences around design and thinking of themselves as design, being able to let go of possibility and stepping into new possibility. Um, mm -hmm. Is there something that really stands out to you that you might want to share from, from this work? Like how, how, for example, can an, like an executive team or a school staff or a startup, you know, founding, how can you really increase your ability to navigate ambiguity, knowing that it enables you to create more possibility? Um, right. I think, you know, in terms of, of design work and creative work, um, really kind of break navigate, navigating ambiguity down into two, two parts, two halves. Yeah. Um, I think from the, outside like most people think of designing as the kind of coming up with the idea part um and there's certainly ambiguity there but i think kind of the first and sometimes harder half of the you know design equation is what problem are you solving um, sometimes we call this problem finding or problem framing or need finding um it's the word that we've um, used a lot around stanford and product design and the d school um, so in that space, it's really, um, you know, maybe, maybe you've been given a specific challenge, um, or need by a client, a project partner, um, an assignment. Um, and so this kind of requires thinking beyond the initial framing and scoping and trying to understand, you know, what, what is the most meaningful problem for, or need for us to address? What, what might be outside of kind of that original purview or scope? Um, and then, of course, the, the second half of actually finding ways to solve or address that problem. Um, and I think on both of those sides, like there's so much ambiguity and unknown, like there's infinite number of needs, mm. infinite number of ways we can solve them. We, um, uh, in a class I teach, uh, it's called ME115A, Introduction of Human Values in Design. It's kind of a foundational course for product design students. Um, and on day one, we show them a picture of like a chaotic scene inside a grocery store at Trader right. Joe's right. and ask them to list off like all the needs you see in this picture. 
And that leads to kind of a rich discussion around what is a need, different kind of layers of needs, like how do you kind of begin to prioritize like what needs you even solve? And I think it's just like a nice short way to, to introduce students to like, yeah, it's messy. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it, um, yeah. you know, it gets to why like, you know, I think learning to, to navigate ambiguity is mm. a superpower because it's not, it might be kind of simple to, to understand, okay, like to design something well, I should uh, consider lots of possibilities, the framing of the problem, explore lots of, lots of possible solutions, but the actual doing it is so uncomfortable. It's so hard. It doesn't feel good to sit in that, that unknown. Um, yeah. On that, you know, I, I really, it doesn't feel good to sit in the unknown in that moment. And then, and there's something, what, what do you think happens after that? You know, like, cause when you, you look back, you know, for all of us, you look back at the kind of most meaningful moments of your life and they weren't the easy, they weren't the ones where it was clear what was going to happen. There was ones that really transformed, you know, us towards a deeper sense of awareness or a new understanding of what's possible, a new relationship or a new career, you know, there's something about, yeah, it's kind of going through the, the learning pit, you know, we often talk about in this, mm -hmm. you know, in schools, mm -hmm. down into mm -hmm. the pit and it's messy, you're not sure. sure and sure, then sure. of course you end up higher than you were. Right. If you keep going. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah. We um, often have students do uh, journey maps at the end of a project or the end of the class, right. kind of look, look back and, you know, we've done one with kind of a ocean metaphor layered on top of it of like, okay, so you made the decision at the beginning to jump out of the boat and like into the ocean of ambiguity, <laughs> into the unknowns. And then kind of, uh, I think one, one version we had like splash zone at the top, mm -hmm. um, what do we call the middle, middle layer? Uh, and then, but like discomfort layer was, you know, at the bottom, sort of these three, three tiers right, right. learning and, and discomfort and had them kind of chart their way through, um, you know, what they felt like, and then go back and an annotate as you were saying exactly like, but when did you learn the most? Mm. Um, and you know, it's often, as you said, back to that quote of discomfort is the price of a meaningful life or a meaningful deep, project. Deep, deep underwater. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Deep, deep underwater. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's great. Kelly, Can, I've got two questions, two final questions. Mm -hmm. for you. First really is about the emerging future of learning. You know, a lot of the mm. systems, you know, K to 12, vocational, higher education, even you think mm. about organizational L and D, you know, a lot of it is kind of well-defined and measurable, like clearly measurable. And we have metrics and then we have a recognition system on top of that, that you know, enables us to move in a certain direction. And uh, we have a clearly defined curriculum and a whole range of other things. What, what, would be, what would be a reflection you'd share about kind of where you think that world might go if it fully embraces kind of this idea of ambiguity um, at kind of a core level as opposed to, oh, we'll tap on like 30 minutes on a Thursday sure. to be ambiguous, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> what's possible do you think? Yeah. Well, you know, the D school, we actually undertook a big project um, in 2013-14 called Stanford 2025. Um, and it was kind of in the era of when MOOCs were first becoming a big ah, yes. thing. And it was like, well, this disrupt education and totally change everything. Um, and it so our starting question was like, what is the future and the value of a residential-based education in an era of, you know, expanding online learning? 
Um, and the work we did over the course of the year really helped kind of kind of broadened in scope, but really helped uh, us think about like what the future of higher education might be. And I think a lot of the, the concepts that we came up with from that work are incredibly relevant in this moment. We're actually also um, in a moment of our uh, the D school and our product design programs kind of becoming more intermeshed, mm. um, which from the outside uh, outside perspective is probably not um, well known or, or significant, but on the inside it's it's significant for us and it's exciting. Um, and so it's it's bringing up these questions now of like how do we continue to evolve our de design degree programs, right? Because mm. D school classes, you know, we're not not degree conferring. So how now with um, the opportunity to, to shepherd and steward our design programs, like how are you thinking about evolving them? That's like all those ideas from Stanford 2025 around um, future future of education. So I mean, a couple of big ones I think um, are around more self-paced learning and mm -hmm. a greater degree of learner agency. Um, uh, with you know tools and structures to help students you know earlier on in their um in their journeys really calibrate their interests so maybe you know much shorter format learning experiences more immersive learning experiences um than the chances to really go deeper and spend more time in areas that they're um really taken by mm. and then the chance to to spend time actually doing more applied work in those areas um I think another one is really more, you know, fluidly complementing in sort of in-classroom learning with learning in the world. Yeah. Um, we we called that one open loop university and painted a sort of what if version of, you know, years, you know, if you've got arrived at university and you had kind of a set number of years, six years, and you've got to decide like when and how you wanted to, to spend them over the course of your lifetime kind of fluidly looping in and out of and on and off. Oh, interesting. I like that. Yeah. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we've already been experimenting uh, with things like this in the design programs with a um, program called Design Summer. Um, it's been a collaboration with the Experience Institute led by Victor Saad, um, where students are, are getting to have more immersive experiences um, during their summer quarter. Um, but mm. again, really complementing those like real world out in the world experiences with um, classroom learning. Yeah. Um, another one, and I think this really ties back to you know some of the project Wayfinder work that I've done, um, but is having a more integrated sense of purpose being the driver of your work, um, mm. really connecting with that. Um, you know, defining purpose here is the sort of intersection of a need or needs that move you in the world with um, your own skills and abilities. Um, and then thirdly, where you find joy and um, just uh, pleasure from, from doing something. And um, so, you know, creating more opportunities for students to reflect on and connect with a sense of purpose again, mm. and, you know, you see how that then dovetails with the idea of more agency and, and pacing in their learning. Um, and then the fourth one was around um, moving, this might pertain more to, you know, a university context, mm -hmm. but shifting from more kind of, you know, siloed academic fields to, um, you know, inquiry and, and work and research um, being focused more around like a skill or ability or even a challenge area. And, you know, Stanford just announced a week or two ago, I mean, it's, it's been in the works for a while, but a new sustainability school. 
just oh, wow. got like 1.2 billion in, in funding to get going. So um, it's going to be, you know, very cross-disciplinary, I think, in its structure. So I think, you know, we'll see more um, uh, connecting of disciplines. And that's mm. something we're already thinking about with um, um, the evolved um, design degrees um, that we'll offer at Stanford. Fantastic, Kelly. Four unbelievable examples. Um, <laughs> one, yeah, I'll just take by all of them. I mean, the, this idea of the the post-discipline kind of world in some ways. It's like the metapraxis. That how, yeah. If you when you identify a need, you're going to need more than one discipline to be able to solve it. And so I'm really taking this this need finding work is something that I, I think is so powerful from the work that the D school does and. And even the piece around ambiguity, it's, um, you know, where do you want your ambiguity to exist? You know, what's the directionality <laughs> into which you're moving, you know? So that idea of acting and adapting that you speak about as well as those two pieces to be able to embrace, it, I think is so powerful. Um, yeah, and this idea of the open loop, yeah, I love this idea of dissolving, you know, really it's embracing the ambiguity that exists in the world and bringing it into our learning institutions. Because the more we do that, the more the more purpose is made manifest. It's clear, because it's uh, there's a, a clear connection with what's happening outside the window of of what is you know an, an institution that often has a lot of history to it. You know, to to come full circle to where we began. You know, and so how do we kind of think about how do we innovate within you know and and pay respect to where we've come from at the same time? Um, it's so good. Kelly, I want. I have a final question for you, right? Because we could we could talk about ambiguity for a long time. Give it. Give us a sense if you if you were to reflect on everything you've learned over you know your 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 time in working in design and education and learning. You know what what's something that you would want to leave us with? You know, pondering as the people listening to our conversation go about their work, often leading learning, designing experiences. Um, you know, leading schools, whatever the case might be. I'd say, um, you know, being in ambiguity and the unknown is hard and uncomfortable for most people. I'd say all people were wired to be this way. Our brains have evolved to, to teach us to be wary of the unknown. But I think through practice and repetition, we can learn to trust that something really good might and can come from that place of suspending judgment and fear, sitting in that place of not knowing, and just letting multiple possibilities um, exist alongside each other. That's a wonderful place for us to finish and also for us to begin. Thank you so much true, true. For, for your time Thank and you, for Luca. joining us uh, today, Kelly. It's been amazing. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed our conversation. 